0: This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great
1: thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10 G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
0: In a fast paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities at Strayer university. We know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change for over 130 years. We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: There's a scene in my book that I find was so powerful when I heard about it from Jennifer Dauta. After she invented this technology of using CRISPR to edit our genes, she has a nightmare. And in the nightmare, somebody says, We want to introduce you to a person who wants to understand this technology. She goes into the room. And the person looks up and it's Adolf Hitler. And she recoils and has trouble sleeping after that for night after night. And that's when, and in the book I describe this, she embarks on a journey to try to figure out how do you enlist the support of people around the world to understand the technology and then figure
0: out what are we comfortable using it to do. That's Walter Isaacson, whose latest book is called The Codebreaker. It's a profile of Jennifer Doudna, the Nobel Prize-winning co-inventor of the gene-editing tool CRISPR. Walter Isaacson loves to write about people who are not only brilliant and creative, but who also change the world. People like Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs. He also loves to tell stories. And his new book has a blockbuster story about the remarkable scientific breakthrough of CRISPR and the people who raced to be the first to create it. I can't tell you how glad I am to be talking to you again, because this is a chance for me and all the conversations we've had in private. I never asked you about your brain.
1: I borrow other people's brains. I write about smart people, and then people think, oh, he must be smart. And I go, no, no, it's just because I write about Einstein or Jennifer Doudna.
0: Well, what impresses me is to be able to write about them, you have to be able to know not only about their work and understand it, you have to know about the time that they lived in. That's a huge undertaking. I mean, I, I admire your willingness to take on the responsibility of that.
1: Well, you want to put yourself in other people's shoes and other people's times and, you know, in the way they look at the world. And when you do that, it turns out things aren't that complicated. I mean, when you're doing with Jennifer Doudna, everybody says, well, that must be really complicated. I said, no, it's a pretty simple molecule and all it does is allow us to edit our DNA. So uh, once you personalize something and make it into a story, uh, it demystifies it.
0: How did you acquire that notion of story? Everybody has multiple stories to tell. And when we work with scientists to try to help them communicate better, when we bring up the subject of story, and we say, tell us your story They say, oh, I don't think I have one. I didn't even think we'd talk about this, but I, I really am curious about your understanding of what makes a story. What What are the elements that you make sure you put in?
1: Well, the important things is the elements you decide to not put in, because when you're sitting around dinner and somebody's telling a story, you know as well as I do, and we've been at places, the people the person is either a really good storyteller or they go on and on and on. And I think the important thing about a story, which my great late editor, Alice Mayhew, taught me when I did my first book is all things in good time, meaning keep it chronological. Second thing is, imagine you're just sitting with a friend and you're having a beer, you're having dinner, or you're, you know, sitting around a campfire and you say, let me tell you a story. You try to make it so that it has sort of a narrative arc, but also a little bit of a tension and a point to it.
0: The tension, where does the tension come from usually?
1: Sometimes it's a rivalry. In the case of Jennifer Doudna in the book I've just done on the race to develop CRISPR technology, it's about competing with another team that was trying to develop the same technology. And by showing the the mix of competition and cooperation, you get a bit of attention to it. It becomes a race. So in this case, it's like a detective story I've written about gene editing And so it has a narrative adventure, like a detective story was, how we're going to find out clues. But it has an added element, which is there's another group that's also in the chase, and they're trying to figure out all the clues. And so it's both a journey of discovery and a race to discovery.
0: And I get the impression you made that vivid by uh, learning about both sides of that race, yeah, I do. Jennifer
1: Doudna is the main character, and she and her scientific partner, Emmanuel Charpentier in Europe were the ones who just won the Nobel Prize, as you know, since you do a lot with uh, prizes like that, for uh, the discovery of this genetic uh, editing technology. And they were in a race against a group uh, led by Fong Zhang at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and Eric Lander, who's just become Biden's chief scientific advisor, And they're all great people. And I spent a lot of time with Feng Zhang up in Cambridge, Mass. And, you know, he's born in China and raised in Iowa, and he has that sort of corn-fed big smile and cheeriness and earnestness that comes from a good Midwesterner. And so there's no heroes or villains in this. There's just uh, two teams racing to make this discovery that'll transform our lives.
0: Among those people who were in competition within each group, There was interesting collaboration. Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna came from different sides of the Atlantic and worked together.
1: It was a great diverse team. It's Jennifer Doudna at Berkeley and Emmanuel Charpentier, who's then in Sweden, but she was born in Paris. And they have two graduate students who are, you know, locked in arms with them. Both were born in Central Europe, but one's working in Vienna, the other's working at Berkeley. And they do this 24 hours a day by Skype and Dropbox and Zoom. And so they're just handing the baton every night at around midnight to the next team, depending on what time zone they're in. So it becomes a really kind of fast adventure story.
0: The willingness to hear different points of view And to have a team made up of many different points of view seems to have been shown over and over again in research to be important to getting unexpected
1: results. And it's particularly important in science, which is, of course, a very empirical pursuit. You have an experiment, you find the results, you test your hypothesis, you revise your hypothesis. But on the other hand, you need different vantages, different perspectives. CRISPR, in my book, is done not simply because they're biochemists who can figure out you know, the chemical experiments, but you need geneticists, you need people who understand, you know, other forms of science, you need computational biologists, but you also need people who just, you know, have an imaginative flair to them, who think out of the box. And so when I look at the teams that worked on CRISPR, the collaboration and the rivalry all involve a diverse group of people, and in that diversity, you get imagination.
0: Imagination, Einstein famously said, was more important than, I think he said, knowledge, right? Right. Yeah, which is misunderstood, I think, sometimes, as though you don't need knowledge.
1: A lot of people tell me they're like Einstein after they've read my book, and I say, well, yeah, sure, how? He says, oh, I think out of the box. I say, yeah, but Einstein knew it was in the box before he thought out of it.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, one of the nice things in my mind that you do is you don't shy away from allowing the human flaws of the people you write about to come to the surface. Einstein was, I would say, cruel to his first wife. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, sent her that, gave her that letter that if she insisted on staying in the house, she had to bring him his meals three times a day and not say anything when she came in the room. (laughs) It was just so mean.
1: You know, humans are humans. We're all human. We all have our flaws. And I think sometimes the flaws are interwoven with the greatness at times. I mean, sometimes if you're not as passionate as Steve Jobs or... You know, and you can be a jerk at times, or as he was, you're not also going to create the Macintosh or the iPhone. So people's personalities are interwoven in what they do. I will say that Jennifer Doudna was a little bit of a challenge to me because I didn't find very many flaws. You know, she's generous. She's lovable. She cares about other people. She's a great mentor. And when she invents this great technology that allows us to edit our genes, she starts worrying about, okay, what are the policy implications? What might that do if people could edit their own children? So a lot of my book is exploring and working with Jennifer Doudna, the hero to explore... Now that we have this technology, we've got about a decade or two to figure out how are we going to decide how we want to use it. There's a scene in my book that I find was so powerful when I heard about it from Jennifer Doudna. After she invented this technology of using CRISPR to edit our genes, she has a nightmare. And in the nightmare somebody says, we want to introduce you to a person who wants to understand this technology. She goes into the room and the person looks up and it's Adolf Hitler. And she recoils and has trouble sleeping after that for night after night. And that's when, and in the book I describe this, she embarks on a process of getting scientists around the world to say, here's how we can use it for good and here's how it could be used to create super soldiers or to create biological weapons and how do we prevent that from happening already in china two years ago a scientist edited the embryo of what became two twin girls so that they would be immune to the virus that causes aids well that sounds like a good thing and people are awed by them using jennifer doudna's CRISPR technology to do that But after the awe, there was a bit of shock, which is like, wait, we're not ready to start editing the genes in our embryos because those will be inherited. This is an edit that you not only make for those two little girls, but it'll be part of the human species forever because it'll be passed down to all of their descendants. And so Jennifer Doudna embarks on a quest. After her journey of discovery for this tool, uh, gene editing tool called CRISPR. She embarks on a journey to try to figure out how do you enlist the support of people around the world to understand the technology and then figure out what are we comfortable using it to do.
0: Couldn't be a better answer to the editor's constant question, why this book and why now?
1: Well, especially now that we've had to deal with coronavirus, which happened, you know, as I was writing the book, we realize that we want to use some of these technologies to be able to make ourselves healthier. How do we use CRISPR to detect the coronavirus? And so I became more and more open to this use of genetic technologies. Once I got the Pfizer vaccine, which is a genetic technology for making me immune to the coronavirus. And likewise, I recoiled, as did my subject, Jennifer Dowden, at the idea of editing babies. But then you start thinking about, well, maybe there are cases when it would be unethical to try to save a child from having cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy or Huntington's disease or sickle cell.
0: As long as... It, out of, I say this out of my ignorance of the, the, the totality of the question, but I would imagine that it's important to be pretty sure you're not mucking with the ecology of the whole system.
1: Well, it's taken nature, you know, uh, millions of years to form these three billion pairs of letters in our DNA and you don't want to screw with mother nature when you don't know what you're doing. Uh, Certainly there are imperfections in our genes. Uh, And we want to fix them. But we got to know what
0: we're doing. That could be one of Ben Franklin's maxims. Don't screw with Mother Nature. When we come back from our break, I talk with Walter Isaacson about why so many of the creative people he writes about value the arts as well as science. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alder Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or, for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.
2: Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries, plus napkins, plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this, plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
0: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Walter Isaacson. So what's curious to me about the books you've written about really interesting people, they seem at first glance to be far flung from one another. What you wonder, does Ben Franklin have to do with Einstein? What does Einstein have to do with Steve Jobs and Jennifer Doudna too? I get the impression that the thing that holds them all together, the thing that's common among all of them, is they each accomplished big change in the world sent the world in a new direction.
1: Yeah, it's not that they're smart, although, of course, they were smart. But as you know, smart people are a dime a dozen, and they don't usually amount to much. What really matters is being imaginative, being creative, being able to make that out-of-the-box leap that an Einstein does on relativity, or for that matter, a Steve Jobs, when he says we need a thousand songs in our pocket, or I'm going to make a phone that's also a music player and an Internet uh, device. And so... My question I always ask is, what is creativity and how does it happen? And there are really two important traits that all the people I've written about share that make them not just smart but creative. One, and you and I talk about this a lot, is they're curious. They're just passionately, obsessively, and even playfully curious about even the most mundane things, like why is the sky blue? And secondly, they're interested in all aspects of you know this beautiful creation they like music as well as math they like art as well as science and steve jobs would end his product presentations by showing a street sign of the liberal arts intersecting with technology when einstein was stuck on general relativity he'd pull out his violin and play mozart and when jennifer Dowd, you know she's a humanist she loves literature And she sees patterns in nature. The ultimate of that, of course, was Leonardo da Vinci, who's a great engineer and a great artist. And his Vitruvian Man is almost a symbol of a a drawing that's both a piece of art and a piece of science and showing the spiritual connection between the two. So I like people like Jennifer Dowdness, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, who stand uh, at that intersection of all the arts and all the sciences.
0: So I think Edward Land advised Steve Jobs at one point to do that, to combine science and art in a way, or something like that. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. When Steve Jobs was very young, he went to see the Edward Land who had created Polaroid, and he said, always stand at the intersection of the arts and sciences because Steve at Reed College, before he drops out, isn't studying computer coding. He's studying calligraphy and dance and poetry but he ends up being the person who creates transformative products that people who are better engineers and coders, such as you know Bill Gates, don't quite create something as uh, emotionally connecting as the iPod was.
0: That's so much at the heart of what we started talking about when we were talking about story, the engagement of someone's emotions. It sounds like it's antithetical to scientific and reason reasonable thought. But it isn't if they can go hand in hand.
1: Yeah, it's important. And that's what Leonardo da Vinci first you know, wrote about, which is you have to be open to the facts. You have to use the scientific method. And Leonardo da Vinci was a pioneer of the scientific method. But he also knew that at the heart of it was a quest to understand everything you could about the cosmos, including how we fit into it. And that ability to feel that the sciences have to be connected to the humanities and to our emotions uh, that leads you not only to great scientific leaps but also, you know, to the Mona Lisa.
0: Why is the Mona Lisa so central in people's mind? Is it did he did he do something different with that painting that's that's interesting to painters, or did he present a character that's interesting to people? What was the what was the, the shift that accounted for its popularity, do you think? It's totally,
1: totally worth being in a separate league from almost any piece of art because, first of all, it has an inner emotion. It's the first time somebody tried to not only show an inner emotion of a portrait subject, but have it be interactive so that as you move your head and you move your body, the smile changes, the eyes change. Because he studied optics, he he dissected human cadavers to figure out every muscle and nerve that moves the lips. He understood how light, when it comes into your eye from an angle, gets detailed slightly differently than if it comes into your eye straight on. So he was able to have shifting perspective, to have a smile that was mysterious, to have a portrait that was three-dimensional and also reflected the emotions of the viewer of the of the painting. None of that had been done before, and it's still this triumph of the intersection of art
0: and science. You're making me think now of Rembrandt and the incredible character that was portrayed and even a moment in time. And that was that was true of uh, other Renaissance painters other than Leonardo. But you're saying that there was something more than the presentation of character or a glimmer of thought behind the eyes. There was something that the way he painted made you see it differently depending on where you were, which was technology and science. It was optics. It
1: was technology. It was perspective. It was mathematics. It was science. It was understanding the anatomy of the human face, but it was also understanding human emotion. He was somebody who... His first jobs really were as a theatrical producer for the, you know, Medici family. Yeah, and he put on pageants and plays in Florence and then for the Duke of Milan. And so he understood, and The Last Supper is really like a stage set, the way it has its perspective done, almost as if it's a theatrical stage. I mean, you don't give dinner parties where everybody's sitting on the same side of the table and the walls come in for uh, perspective purposes. And so he understood, too, theater, and he understood the conveyance of emotion that comes from that. And so that's all part of the mix of loving everything from math to music to medicine to theater to uh, art.
0: So much to ask you about that. He was gay. What was the, what was the tenor of the time? Was that accepted in, in, in the circles he moved in, or did, was it, did he yeah. have to be in the closet?
1: It's a good question. though. No, he was not in the closet, but he's definitely somebody who doesn't fully fit in. He comes from the village of Vinci as like a 13, 14-year-old to the town of Florence, and he's a total misfit. He's gay. He's left-handed. He was born out of wedlock. Uh, he's distracted. He dresses in purple and pink tunics in a flamboyant way. And the really cool thing was that the Medici family in Florence and the others in Florence Totally embraced him. You know, he was the you know he was a, a, a toast of the town with all of his talents, and this is why Florence becomes the cradle of the Renaissance. As people are flowing in from the Ottoman Empire. They're flowing in from villages around Italy, especially if they don't feel at home in the village, perhaps because they're gay or because they feel they don't fit in. And the to- not only tolerance but embrace that a town like Florence gives to the misfits, the rebels, and the round pegs and the square hole, as Steve Jobs would say, is why you get Florence to be the cradle of the Renaissance.
0: Tell me about Ben Franklin. Very interesting to me. We were talking about whether or not Leonardo was accepted by the people around him at his time. And Ben Franklin seems to have been a kind of a free spirit, even though he had a lot of maxims, and was probably personally a decent person. He lived outside the norms a little bit, didn't he?
1: Oh, yeah. He did not follow, you know, he has one of his famous maxims in Port Richards' almanac, which is early to bed and early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, he didn't go to bed early, and he didn't get up early, but uh, he was a, type of person you could uh relate to
0: the world loved him i mean it was the the picture of him with a kite at the end of a string and Mm -hmm. lightning coming down
1: snatching fire from the gods as they said and he was the first person to become a scientific celebrity like that and he's a good example of people who connect science to the humanities who connect uh things like you know Uh, Newton's law of checks and balances and uh, positive and negative flow of electricity to things like writing a constitution.
0: That polymathic approach seems to be true of a number of the people you've written about. It's not only that they made big change and changed the direction of our culture, they also had the capacity, like you, to be interested in many things.
1: I, I think that... There's a really important place for people in this world who are specialists, who can drill down one hole and go really, really deep and spend their entire lives becoming among the world's great experts in one field or another. But also there's some value of being what I call a floater. And you remember your friend uh, Calvin Trillin wrote a novel by that name because he worked at Time Magazine like I did. And you used to float from section to section. You'd write medicine one week and music the following week and then foreign affairs and then politics. And that ability to see connections among different disciplines, that's a form of creativity as well. And that distinguishes everybody I've written about. You know, Ben Franklin cared about everything from anatomy you know, to the arts. He made music machines and he made rods that can t- tame lightning, and he also made constitutions and treaties. Uh, likewise, Steve Jobs was that way, and Jennifer Doudna, the hero of the codebreakers, loves the humanities, loves the arts, and applies it to the sciences. And of course, by far in history, the ultimate example of that is Leonardo
0: da Vinci. You make me think of the um, the notion that Ben Franklin lived a life that was apparently particularly relevant to today. And I'm thinking of the the moment you you talk about where he edited the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> of saying we hold all these truths to be sacred, which Jefferson wrote, crossed that out and wrote self-evident.
1: It gets us back to the science because he believed that it was logic and uh, experimentation and rationality and reason that were going to be a foundation for our rights, not the dictates of a particular dogma or religion.
0: Which in it opens the door to tolerance. Uh, tolerance At? is not not the best word for what it tries to say, but it, 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 uh, allowing other people to be what they are and who they are.
1: Yeah. And it opens the door to open inquiry, which is what your you know podcast is all about, what your writings about science have all been about, and which we've lost quite a bit in this day and age. The notion that you'd go into a discussion or into a debate about some issue and You weren't trying to pick the facts in order to prove your preconceived bias. You were actually inquiring with an open mind.
0: You've written, I guess, half your books about people who were alive when you were writing it. How did that differ for you from writing about Ben Franklin and Einstein, Leonardo,
1: well, every now and then I'll write about somebody alive like Henry Kissinger, and after having to deal with it, I'll say to myself, I'm going to do somebody now who's been dead for 300 years because, you know, it can it it can be hard having to deal with a living subject. But the good thing about uh, dealing with a subject who's around, like a Steve Jobs or a Jennifer Doudna, is that you end up learning so much more. you know, I sat in Jennifer Doudna's lab day after day. I was on her Zoom meetings and in her Slack channels. I spent, you know, days walking with her, talking with her, having meals with her, phone conversations on the weekend. So I could follow step by step what she, and for that matter, Fong Zhang did, Emmanuel Charpentier, Jennifer Doudna's scientific partner. I went over to Europe and, you know, spent time with her, and so you end up knowing so much more, and you're going to have a richer, fuller, more human picture than you can if you're just dealing, like, with uh, Ben Franklin's letters.
0: When you were talking about getting up to speed on Jennifer Doudna's work on CRISPR, you reminded me of how you had to get up to speed on the math to understand Einstein, to understand <laughs> many things about him. For, in- for instance, what e equals mc square actually means and and what general relativity is but you you didn't just stick with the word analysis or the word construction you you actually worked on on math right you got up into higher levels of math am I right about that
1: yeah I had, I had to take a course in tensor calculus to understand how space and time curve in the theory of general relativity.
0: you got to help me with that. What is tensor calculus? Oh, tensor calculus is just all the
1: uh, calculus you need, uh, all the formulas you need to understand the curving of two-dimensional, three-dimensional, and even four- or five-dimensional space and objects. And if you're trying to describe how, you know, something curves and bends and shapes and how mass helps change the curve of the universe, and the curve of the universe helps change how math moves. Even Einstein said he got stumped by the math of it all. That said, I didn't try to delve into the math in the book. And the good news about The Codebreaker, you know, my book about gene editing, is for those who don't uh, feel comfortable with math, there's no math in it. It's a, it's a heck of a lot simpler of a book.
0: But when you talk about the curve of the universe... That's a concept that I've been trying to get my hands around, my head, my head brain around for a long time. We did a show in which we went around the world talking to scientists about the universe, about dark matter, dark energy. And everywhere I went, I said to the scientists I'd be talking to, I can't get a picture of what four dimensions is. I can't picture it. I can't imagine it. What's the problem? And, and each one would say to me, What makes you think out of seven billion people, you're the only one who's going to be able to picture it?
1: <laughs> well, I think there are a couple of things that are useful in what you said. One is that it does help to visualize things. Einstein could, Jennifer Doudna, visualize the structure of molecules like RNA. You can't really see them that easily, but she's the person who discovers the twists and the shapes and the folds of RNA, and it helps her figure out how it can make a tool, like a gene editing tool, or for that matter, the vaccines that we're now getting uh, to fight coronavirus. Uh, The second thing is you, you want to use metaphors if you're a good storyteller. Like if I have to explain to people the curvature of the universe, in general relativity, I say, imagine a trampoline, you know, that has a fabric. And you roll some a bowling ball on it, the fabric curves. And then you roll some billiard balls after it, and they move and they start curving towards the bowling ball because it's bent the fabric of the... It's, you know, put a dent in the fabric of the trampoline. And that's just the way... That gravity works is that it's, you know, that's a metaphor, an image, so that you can visualize gravity is that a big object takes like a trampoline surface and makes it curve. And so other objects will not go in a straight line, they'll follow the curve. Likewise, with CRISPR, the gene editing tool, there's a very simple visualization or metaphor for it, which is it's simply a guide a guide that has programmed into it uh, a little snippet of genetic code that it wants to find, meaning a gene it wants to find, and it's attached to a scissors, which we call an enzyme. And that, that, that guide molecule says, okay, we're going to find that sequence that we want to edit in our genes, and then the scissors is going to cut that gene. Well, it's not really a scissors. If you look under a microscope, you don't see a scissors. But that's the visualization. It's a simple thing. How CRISPR, which just has really three components in it, it's a guide molecule carrying a pair of scissors that knows where to cut the DNA
0: in our body if we want to change one of our genes. That seems to work for CRISPR. But I get the feeling that when you learned enough math, you were able to see through the lens of the math something that I can't see just using my imagination.
1: Well, I'm sure you could, actually, because I know your imagination and I know your love of science. But it's like Ada Lovelace, who was one of the heroes of one of my books. Uh, She's the person in the 1840s who comes up with the concept of a computer algorithm. And she's Lord Byron's daughter. Now, her mother was not very fond of Lord Byron when Ada was growing up. If you know anything about Lord Byron, he was not husband of the year. And so wanted uh, Ada tutored only in mathematics so she wouldn't become a poet. And it didn't work because Ada loved both poetry and math, became a great mathematician, and that's how she does computer algorithms. But she says, when I hear a line of my father's poetry... I can visualize it, even though it's difficult. Like, um, she walks in beauty like the night. That's a difficult thing to figure out what it means, but you can visualize it. Likewise, she would see a mathematical equation and visualize that it was just the good Lord's brushstroke for painting the way something in reality worked. And so, the important thing is, I don't think we teach math well to our kids or that we embrace it well enough ourselves Because math is something you should visualize. Equations are actually brushstrokes that describe something in nature just as much as one of Leonardo's brushstrokes was.
0: Everything you say makes me want to talk another couple of hours with you, but our time is running out now. And we always end our shows with seven quick questions. Are Are you game? I'm up for it. Let's go. Of all the things that you've learned about, what do you really wish you understood? The use of gene editing technology.
1: It's going to be the most important technology of our time, and I've loved writing about how it was discovered and how it works. I wish I could know how wise we are and how we're going to use it.
0: Okay, next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
1: I usually try to use Ben Franklin's method, which is to ask them questions. He said, never contradict somebody. But you can always ask questions. And eventually, and Socrates knew this as well, they may see that there's more to it than they think. I don't try to change people's minds. What I say to my students here at Tulane University is, I'm just trying to make it seem a little bit more complex. Sometimes people are complex. Sometimes history is complex. Sometimes when you think you know everything about something, I'm going to ask you questions so that you'll realize, oh, it may be a little bit more
0: complex. Good. Third question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? (laughs) I guess it would be, what's the
1: strangest question anybody's ever asked you? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much. and I take that as a compliment. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: Uh, sometimes I just let them talk because sometimes you can be surprised that uh, by listening to people, you're better off than if you're trying to get the word in edgewise.
0: Let's say we're at a dinner table when that becomes possible again. <laughs> and you're sitting next to someone you don't know how do you start up a true conversation with that person
1: you can always find the thing that you know is a person's passion and especially if it's something you know intellectually interesting that they never get questioned about i try to say explain to me you know your math or explain to me your music or explain to me how the scientific discovery you made works And that people always open up when you feel they feel people are genuinely interested in the things that they're passionate about.
0: What gives you confidence? You know, I
1: I think I have a lot of curiosity and I don't think I'm overly confident because I'm usually questioning whether anything I know or believe or think, I think, well, maybe that's wrong. But I do believe that I have the confidence to go out and ask questions and try to learn things. And I think I'm pretty good at absorbing different facts and being able to change my mind. Mm. Last question. What book changed your life? When I was young, my dad left on my bed James Watson's The Double Helix about the discovery of the structure of DNA. And it was a rollicking adventure story filled with gossip with a large amount of science sort of smuggled into it, but you barely noticed it. And I thought, that's really cool. Um, And I found my old copy, and I even have in the margins words that I couldn't, were new to me, like biochemistry, and I defined them. And I thought, maybe I should become a scientist, a chemist, and I didn't. Then a few years ago, I was questioning Jennifer Dowdner, the subject of my new book. I was questioning her like you just did on, you know, what, what drives your passions. And she told me that when she was in sixth grade, her father left on her bed a copy of The Double Helix. And she discovered that Rosalind Franklin was a great scientist, that women could become scientists. And unlike me, she decided to become a biologist and a chemist. And so that book had a huge influence on me. And the minute I heard her tell that story, it influenced me to want to write about her story and how it affects the way we live today.
0: Well, you answered a question that's often asked that I always shrink from, which is if you didn't do what you do now, what would you do? And you (laughs) you answered that. Do you ever think maybe I should have been a, a scientist, I'd be more fulfilled, I'd I discover something about nature that nobody else ever saw and have that amazing experience? Or do you feel you're in the right spot?
1: I think being a research scientist has got to be one of the most noble and most fulfilling pursuits you can do in life. However, I I don't uh, have enough arrogance to think that I would have been a Nobel Prize winning biochemist like the person I wrote about. As I said before, Some people are really good at drilling down and becoming a world-class expert at things. I'm a little bit more of a generalist, somebody who likes to understand and connect various disciplines. So I think my skill is not discovering gene editing, but being able to tell a story that allows other people to appreciate the beauty of that discovery and what
0: we need to do with it. This is so great. I have so enjoyed talking with you, Walter. Every time we have even a minute together somewhere, I, have a, I learn something, and I'm very grateful.
1: Well, thank you. And someday I look forward to having dinner again together in person.
0: Me too. Thanks so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. Walter Isaacson's new book, The Codebreaker, adds to his biographies of creative and world-changing geniuses, Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, among them. He's also been the editor of Time magazine, president of CNN, and the CEO of the Aspen Institute. He's currently a professor of history at Tulane University. And having heard this show, you might be interested in my conversation with Jennifer Doudna after she won the Kavli Prize last year, just before she won the Nobel Prize. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shed, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
2: You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter, or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Ah! Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary.
0: Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Rabbi Steve Leader. His new book, The Beauty of What Remains, is a moving, inspiring, and surprisingly often funny book about the loss of loved ones. The book is informed not only by his having presided over more than a thousand funerals, but also, and more profoundly, by his reaction to the loss of his father. When I am gathered with a family to talk about their loved one who has died and to prepare for the funeral,
1: the minute I hear one of them crack a joke and everyone else laugh. I know that they have internally made the decision to survive this loss. To laugh is to affirm, right? To affirm that the world is not ending. This loss is painful, this loss is terrible, but it is survivable and
0: I am going to survive it. I'm gonna walk through that valley of shadows. I'm not gonna stay there forever. And that, that's why humor is so important. Rabbi Steve Leder. Next time on Clear and Vivid. In the meantime, on Thursday, check out the first of a new series of Science Clear and Vivid. I talk with two remarkable young men. They were part of the team that Walter writes about in The Codebreaker who were in competition with Jennifer Doudna. That summer
2: was like one of the best summers for me, like in my life, because it felt like a startup. Like everyone was working on different projects. People worked together. Everyone had this vision of like we can really make genome editing like a thing for people and cure all genetic disease. Like it was just a buzz. I had the exact same experience that Omar did, which is that you know when you're in really a you know unique like historic environment to be lucky enough to be in a movement, um, right at the beginning, it's just it's just great, you know, timing.
0: That's Omar Abadiah and Jonathan Gutenberg, young researchers who were smart enough, persistent enough, and lucky enough to find themselves while still in their early 20s in the lab of one of the pioneers of CRISPR. And they're now pioneers of their own. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.